Hello, I am so excited. As always, you know that I'm always excited. I'm an excitable person, but generally I'm like, it's just bubbling up today. And that is because I have an absolute firecracker on, an ally, a man, by the way. Yes, we do have men coming on here, allies, strong kings coming on this platform. I'm really excited. I'm going to introduce you, but in one moment, because I want to remind you, the Super Women Can podcast has been created to smash past that narrative that says that we can't, because we know we're super women. We're spinning lots of plates. We've got lots of challenges. Yes. But if we pull them aside, we know that we can elevate to our highest heights. We can have more money in the bank. We can have more time with our families. We can get the success, the version of success that matters to us. And we can do that while balancing home and personal life. Yes, we can have it. Some say all, but all that means for us. Now, guess what? We've got a person who's going to be able to help us understand ourselves from a completely unique perspective and one that we need to really seek firsthand. And we have an amazing person, excited Lee Chambers, tell us about yourself. Welcome onto the Superwomen Can platform. Yeah, so a pleasure to be with you, Sam. Thanks for inviting us. So yeah, Lee Chambers. I run a wellbeing business. I'm a psychologist by background, but been on been on a hell of a journey. Learned a lot along the way, and I'm yeah considered to be quite an active male ally in the space. Really, kind of representing not only kind of fighting and looking at how we can make the world more equitable, working with young boys to get them seeing the world differently, working with women to support, you know, actually navigating the systems and structures and dismantling the things that don't work for us. So yeah, it's an active process, always learning, always always disrupting something and always making myself a little bit of good trouble. But no, absolute pleasure to be with you and looking forward to uh, digging into the podcast today. I love that. Good trouble. This is a man after my own heart. Like, who knows me very well? I'm literally, I like to shake things up a little bit. And I think it's important that we do that. Now, tell me, what are are the biggest things that you've been doing so far in your business to actually make, to shape change? So I suppose some of the biggest things are, firstly, not having a completely defined idea of what I wanted my business to be. You know, this is my second business. And later on, when I share a bit of the journey I got to get here, it'll make a little bit more sense. But the well-being business that I have today is really focused on making workplaces better places to work for everyone, really focusing on how we can make well-being in the workplace inclusive. That includes, you know, analysis, it includes strategy, it includes looking at training, making sure it's accessible, making sure, you know, there's cultural sensitivity in there, making sure there's things around hormonal health in there, making sure that well-being isn't just for one type of person who's, you know, who's kind of, there is a market and industry of well-being and it fits a very certain sex, subset of people that all the products and services are marketed towards, but ultimately well-being is for everyone. We've all got health. We all deserve and have, deserve to have the opportunity to be well, to be honest. So I'm kind of driven in how we help businesses to do that, to create structures, to create spaces, to create change, and actually to make sure that, you know, the people who are often forgotten about in well-being don't get forgotten about. Thank you so much. And that just reminds me, because I was interviewing someone and they were saying that talking about the forgotten number, and it's something that you advocate so strongly about, which is just nicely going in 
no one should be forgotten about. So when women generally start to go through that menopausal time, you are an advocate of that, which is amazing. Can you tell me more about how you support in that area of well-being? Yeah, so a lot of what we do, Sam, is firstly looking at what an organisation does. And truth be told, you know, hormonal health, menstruation, menopause, directly impacts 51% of the global population. You know, only like 4.6 billion people. And I was going to companies and they weren't doing anything on it. And for me, it just didn't make any sense. <laughs> like we'd have some policy for some like niche health condition, which might impact like 0.01% of the workforce. Mm-hmm. And they weren't doing anything on something that's a guarantee. And the truth be told, it indirectly impacts everyone. Because even if you're a man, you're indirectly impacted, whether it's your partner, your colleagues, your friends, your family, someone in your circle, someone in your network is going through it. So it just didn't make sense. So now I kind of engage businesses in a whole range of ways to make sure that they're looking at health holistically and inclusively. We do training. We even help men start to engage in some of these topics which have been taboo, which have been stigmatised. We get those conversations going. We get them speaking about it on the golf course, in the pub, you know, making making these conversations happen in places to make sure it does become normal, to make sure people get curious and start to educate themselves on it. And actually taking men on some journeys quite often of things they've not necessarily been through themselves, but really giving them an understanding about why it's important for them to start exploring in those areas. Oh, man. I don't think in my adult life, or even when I was growing up, I've had a conversation about periods or menstruating or menopause with another male like it is so taboo it's shut up don't say anything be quiet how have you navigated that how have you managed to kind of smash through and make this a conversation like a real conversation yeah I think a big part (laughs) yeah I think a big part comes from my kind of background in the journey I've been on I think firstly I've always been like curious about the world, why things work. And the truth is, I was always curious about why women's health was seen as this, you know, this stigmatized thing. And I started to realize, I think, when I was quite young, actually, someone has made this dirty so that people don't talk about it. Someone has made it a bad thing to talk about because it's what I realized it's a natural thing. All yeah. women are going through it. Why don't why can't we talk about it? Who's made it like that? And I didn't know when I was younger. I was like, I can't, I don't, I don't get it. But on my journey, obviously, you know, I built a business and then became ill, lost the ability to walk, had to learn to walk again. I went through that whole recovery journey and then spent three and a half years as a stay-at-home dad. And suddenly I was thrust into female dominant environments and having these conversations, overhearing these conversations, learning about maternity discrimination, learning about things such as endometriosis and PCOS. And actually just, you know, making people feel safe enough to actually share some of these things that I hadn't been through myself and suddenly gave me an insight into what it was like. And, you know, I was shocked because I didn't heard these stories before until I was actually there. Uh, And I think even for those who are close to you, sometimes it's quite difficult to talk about these things because, you know, you haven't necessarily as a man got a reference point for monthly hormonal cycles and a lot of women's health issues. But as I've kind of come into the world of workplace well-being, it's just come to the fore again, fundamentally, because of the patriarchal society that we have, 
because so many things have been built by men for men without any consideration for women that's the workplace that's the structures that we live in the institutions that are supposed to protect us the networks that we move around the way everything's engineered manufactured and built it's all male dominant and the truth is that's made women's health something we can't talk about why hope the hormonal journey is like natural it's it's, yeah, it's, it's a journey it happens it's human and all of a sudden i started to realize where it's because of the way the world's been built it's turned women's health into something that's dirty and we shouldn't talk about and i was like that don't make sense so i'm going to go and talk about it and i'm going to get other men saying menstruation same periods same menopause until they can it. sit there and be it. comfortable comfortable mm. saying it and not stood there in the kind of tampon aisle like quivering like why <laughs> yeah 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 it's just it's just a mission that i'm on some mission i i love that i but i love the mission and one i remember i was a hr global hr business partner and i remember one of our individuals came who was a executive executive ea basically and she was going through severe menopausal symptoms and no one understood like she you know she constantly saying sam no one understands what i'm going through and i as a woman standing in front of her as a woman myself i did not understand what she was going through and i was like this is something my mum hasn't talked about my grand hasn't talked about society we i don't think we've ever had it in school it's not something we talk about so it challenged she challenged it and said you know these are the symptoms these are the things that i experienced and i was just other than people saying you get hot fresh there's more to it than just hot thrushes mm-hmm. i was shocked i was generally shocked and she was like i'm gonna start campaigning and i remember her going i'm gonna start setting up these little working groups and these cafes i'm gonna do external talks and I, that was the first time I heard anyone wanting to, I'm like, you wanted to speak about this publicly? Like that taboo, even as a woman tell, telling you this. So I understand that first we as women, you know, those who will be listening as well as allies, we as women have to actually face the fact that we have to also open up the conversation and remove that stigma and the fear as well to allow the space for men to actually have the conversation. We also need to educate ourselves. I want to talk about this and you're going to probably share more because you probably know more, which is which is amazing, is as a black woman and someone who's quite young but has to actually now think a little bit differently I did not know up until like last year, and this is having the diverse lens on things, that as a black woman, I would actually menopause earlier than a white woman. Why? You know, and I actually now need to think about menopause now. Like before I thought, I've got years yet to think about it. No, I need to educate myself. I need to think about it. And I need to also make sure that others know about it as well so that they can prepare. Like it shouldn't just be no one talking about it. I actually actively go into anyone who says they're a menopause person now, training. I say, have you got a diverse lens? Mm-hmm. And they're like, what? What do you mean a diverse lens? Have you? Do you know this? And 99% of them saying, I had no idea, Sam. So what you are doing is is vital. Not only are you giving the lens, but you actually give a lens from a, a male perspective, but you give a lens from the diverse perspective. Educating people that don't even know. I don't, I didn't know this. So yeah. tell me, tell me more. Tell me how 
I know you have the conversations, you've opened it up, people are talking about it on the golf course, which makes me like, I just can't, it's blowing my mind. But tell me your journey. I know you said a little bit, but I want to know your full journey, who you are. Because you, you you skirted over the fact that you you you, you had a, you had an incident where you had to be a stay-at-home dad. Tell me more. And then I want you to just get come back to this bit about the diverse lens on menopause, if you can. I'm sorry, I want to take take me take us on a journey, Lee. Yeah, so I grew up on a council estate in Bolton in the northwest of England. You know, very few black families in the area. But ultimately, you know, I kind of always like that curious child who was always asking questions. Like I said, that got me to great conversations, but a lot of trouble. I got the first one in my extended family to go to university. I ended up actually dropping out halfway through due to, you know, some significant challenges with my own mental health and reflecting back, you know, as well, or understanding now that I'm autistic, I kind of see how that presented some challenges as well. So I spent a year at home, built myself back up and managed to get back to university. I managed to re-enroll and graduate and obviously kind of like, you know, sure you can go through some adversity, but bounce back on the other side. Uh, I then managed to get a graduate scheme in corporate finance but got spat out after eight months due to the credit crunch in 2007. So I had this, you know, this big vision, professional career, you know, really made it. My mum and dad took me out for my first little suit and everything. But yeah, that made me think, you know, I can't rely on this external world to to build a career. I might have to do something on my own. So I worked in local government for a few years and then, well, actually not, a few months before setting up uh, my first business, which was a video game company and built that, you know, over five years. But it was then five years into that journey that I became unwell. My immune system failed and I had to learn to walk again. And my son was 18 months old at the time. My wife was six months pregnant with with our daughter. And it was an incredibly difficult time because I was suddenly wiped out, lost my independence, lost my physicality, lost my mobility. And, you know, I was relying on everyone else to support me and, that really kind of strips back your masculinity and makes you realise all the things you've not been grateful for. Um, That recovery was like an 11-month journey to get back on my feet. Uh, But I took that journey alongside my daughter. You know, she was born when I was in walking rehab uh, and I was determined to get back on my feet because ultimately I wanted to take her first steps with her. And she was there, my little walking head of pram, uh-huh. as I was there trying to get to the next grid on the floor, the next lamppost, the next bush. And she'd be there in the pram looking up at me, kind of smiling, probably wondering why I was like oh. peeling over. But I managed to get back on my feet so I could take her for steps with her. And you know what? I can proudly say I beat my daughter or something because she's now eight and I probably haven't beat her at anything else since. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and it was that, it was that during that period that I realised that actually, for me, I've been really busy building this business over the past few years. But this time with my kids, you know, in a few years, they'll start school. Then I won't see them that much. And then before I know it, they'll be teenagers and they'll want to hang out with their friends. They won't think I'm cool. So it's like... <laughs> Why don't I just, you know, take my foot off the gas and just spend time as a stay-at-home dad? Because I'm never going to get this time back in the future. I'm never going to be able to make these memories again once this time's gone. And I'll miss a lot of the fuss for doing things. I'll miss all those rich times as they start to understand who they are and what they can give to the world. And I'll miss those if I kind of go back into work. Plus, 
I need to recover and look after myself because my health is going to be something I need to manage for the rest of my life. So I did that, and that gave me the space to have that those times. And you know this yourself, Sam. When you become, you know, the the main caregiver of two little children, or three, or four, or five, or six, yeah. you become about you. You basically, especially as a man, you have to hone these skills, right? So I'm now from that time to stay home dad, a better communicator, more patient, more present. Definitely a lot better negotiation because I got like double teamed all the time. Like two toddlers, just yeah. If 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 I was saying no to one, the other one was just sneaking around the back, like ha. <laughs> so yeah, but it also gave me a, a real a real chance to look and think about some of the social norms and societal stereotypes, because you know even as a black father, right, there are a lot of stereotypes out there in society. You know, I got some side eye looks on that journey because you know black fathers are stereotyped to not be the most present and not be the most active. Mm. And that's not necessarily a true stereotype for everyone. It's just like the menopause. It's massively different in how it manifests in different people. And you can never assume what people are going through until you ask. But ultimately, to kind of bring it back, that has forged and planted the seed within me to really look at things from an intersectional perspective, because I've started to kind of look at that in the world that we're in today. And in the menopause space, I'll be brutally honest, I've met most people within it. A lot of people really want to make change. There's been some people who've been activists for 20 years who are finally getting, you know, some space to really share all their knowledge and insights, which, you know, they've been waiting so long to get some of that mainstream movement and get some real political backing. And for them, you know, it's it's really important. And they finally got some airtime. They've got a platform and their passions are coming to the fore, which is really important because we finally got to speak about it. But taking that step back, it also is quite a privileged space to be because for those who are campaigning and building new businesses in the space, you know, it, it's like it's an audience that's starting to think, actually, I, I need to access this support. But quite often this support is limited accessibility law understanding in some communities and some cultures is still lagging behind because of the systemic and social norms that sit there but for me the biggest thing is if I look at health inequity in society you know it's a massive intersectional lens there for black women look at health outcomes around maternity look at research that's been funded for a long enough time to actually see outcomes massively underfunded in you know populations of color if we look at stuff such as like fibroids more likely menopause earlier so many different aspects where there is if you take a community you know lens on it and an intersectional lens you see that there are actually things you need to consider when you're building these products and services the sad reality is that's not often built into these things so i'm having those conversations because we've got to look not just at the health impacts of direct health conditions we need to look at the indirect impact of a whole different set of microaggressions added on top of the general gender microaggressions, all these kind of weathering things that, you know, hit you over time. You know, you know, black women are expected to be strong and they're expected to be expected to be strong, expected to be silent, expected to hold everything together. But what do you do when your hormones are in such flux that you can't? It's so challenging. And the truth is 
these societal expectations, these tropes, they massively da damage black women in terms of really being able to seek that support, honestly, to be able to support each other. And, you know, when things aren't designed within it through of an intersectional consideration, basically you're not serving people. You're not serving people. You might even be widening the inequity through tunnel vision and sitting in your own privilege and not realising the impact it can have on others. Wow, that was powerful and so true. Unpicking that, I don't even know where to even start because the first thing I was kept thinking of is going into the boots and finding plasters and they mm -hmm. wore my skin colour. And in my entire life, I did not know that plasters were supposed to be skin colour. I didn't even know. I seen brown. I didn't even need stay. I didn't even need plasters. I picked them up and I was like, I don't even need plasters. I'm buying them. <laughs> I was like, I'm buying them. But my, and I, it, but what it dawned on me, exactly what you're saying is that products and service have never considered black women. They haven't considered minority women. They haven't considered anyone other than white individuals. And it's been long. And yes, we're starting to see some trickle. And I'm saying a trickle because it is a trickle of change coming, but there needs to be so much more, so much more impact that it's actually, it is hurting our society. It is hurting our society that people think it's an option. Not, it's, oh, it's a nice, it's just a nice to do. It isn't an option. It is how we run our society. We are the global majority. That is the reality. We're not minorities in reality. We are the global minority. And for businesses to really thrive, as to really thrive in this world, they do need to consider diversity. So I am so grateful to have this conversation. The other thing, and I was just getting a bit heated when you said it, very heated, is maternal health for Black women. Where do I get started? I don't know the same with the unpicking because maternal health as a woman who's had six children and nearly died four of those four times giving birth five times because I've got twins I, I I can understand the statistics have not changed for 20 years 20 years there are companies there's you know there are social enterprises sure as CAN's Caribbean African Health Network who are doing a lot of work to make the change but there is no there is no change. There has not been a movement for 20 years. The statistics have remained the same. Nothing's changed. Nothing. I would love to hear your thoughts on just because it's starting to bubble up in me as a mother. And I'm sure there's others that are listening. Just your your view on that, just that that area. I know we talked about menopause. We can move now to maternal health. We can talk about other things. But let's let's talk about this one. Yeah, at least it's bubbling up, Sam, because it's it's a historical legacy thing. Stereotypes around black women's pain threshold, mm. they can just they can just keep going longer. And it literally sits from the historic aspects of you know of slavery. Yeah, from a from a base, base perspective, you know, they can they can just work that bit harder, they can enjoy a bit more pain, they can enjoy a bit more torture. And those like the legacy of those stereotypes still exist today. You know, what are the what are the medical textbooks? It's all white models based white on white dimensions. Based, you know, research, very little research into these health outcomes. And why is the research not there? Because fundamentally, who decides what gets researched? Who decides what gets funded? All these systemic inequities. And you look at the institutions that are supposed to protect people's health, even though one dimensional in how to deliver things. 
And it's just, I mean, the, the truth is, Sam, it, it's a whole systemic problem that won't get solved until the very systems are dismantled and rebuilt yeah, to, be, to be much more inclusive and much more intersectional. And the truth is we can have these little things, you know, like forward times more likely, you know? I don't even need to finish that statistic because anyone who knows, who knows, you know? And it's it's shocking, it really is, you know, to a point where you can actually, if you step back realistically, you just get depressed at the reality. It's just so many lives lost, so many struggles that are not needed and so little consideration. End of the day, Sam, we're all human. We all deserve that base level of respect, base level of care from the systems around us. And for as long as we have these systems where we're just an afterthought. They'll bolt us on somewhere at some point. You know, how, how does that make you feel as a human when you realise you, you know, things have been designed, they didn't even think about people like you? And then they expect people people like you to go and fit in. Yeah? It's yeah. I mean, this this this, this is a topic that we could probably do, you know, three different parts on, but let's just say yeah, that things need to be designed universally and the inequities need to be considered to be researched to be funded and actually everyone deserves a health opportunity right everyone deserves health opportunity because at the minute the way things are built people are being invalidated in their health opportunity and that's fundamentally wrong thank you so much for sharing that i literally was just like trying to stop myself from actually crying because how hard that is, this is hitting me and anyone else who's listening you know i am my my last born is 13 weeks old and i haven't shared this actually this is probably going to be the first time i do share it but and because i'm i'm still healing and i'm still going through the trauma of it was that basically one of the things that happened was that she had jaundice levels all my kids have had jaundice levels put the blue light on bobs run call their own and as I gave birth, they were like, we're going to check her jaundice levels, make sure, because you've all your kids have had jaundice, the end. Nothing I've ever thought about. Three days later, while I was still in hospital, about to be discharged, like, we're going to get you discharged. I was like, well, she's looking very yellow. She's not feeding. What were her jaundice levels? They're like, oh, we forgot. Literally said they forgot. Wait, wait a minute. We'll just quickly check now. Went to check, which is the one that they do, the little thing that just does it on the chest. Checked, they checked her and they basically rushed her into intensive care. And I was expecting to go home and they told me, had I gone home, her levels were nearly 400, which basically is fatal levels. Had I gone home, she would have just died. Mm. For me, sorry. <laughs> So if anyone that's listening and not got the video part, I'm literally tearing up now. Mm -hmm. So for me, these mistakes can't happen where we, and the fact is jaundice, you know, you're looking at, you know, thinking about black children. My children are born white looking. Don't know why. Some sort of throwback. They're born white. So they, you can see when they're yellow. But the fact is, is that they don't observe them the same way because they are of colour. Because yeah. if they had taken the time, three full days, 72 hours, people, you know, when you're in hospital, how many times does the nurse come in and check? Like every couple of hours. They didn't bother. 
Do you know what I mean? They didn't bother. Not even mentioning before I even gave birth the situation I had where they ignored me when I was clearly in pain. And it was only a black nurse that says, I am taking her through. She's ready. And you know what they said? Just leave her to the side. <sighs> and it was a black nurse that says, no, I will take the hit. I'm taking her through. Referring to me, she took me through within an hour I'd given birth. So she was correct. She goes, I knew it. I knew you were ready. The, the fact is, is that we are ignored. We have other things that are going on as well. We uh, religiously, I'm a Christian. So some, some minority groups, we're very much in our faith. So mm-hmm. not just how we show up, not just back slave days, but just in present day, we're meant, we're, we, we want to be take a stance of faith and trust in our in what we believe in our most high, not the medical system. So how we present ourselves, even if we are in pain, we're trusting God for the process, which means that we do show up differently. So we will show up as if we're, we're, we're okay when we're, we're, we're tolerating pain, but actually it just takes questions. And if we have questions and we're ignored, which is often the case, questions show us how, how are you feeling? What is your pain threshold? Simple things they ask everyone else. Between one and 10, how would you say your pain is? And if I say 10, but I'm not going, ah! I'm, I'm 10, but I'm showing you I'm 10 because that's that's my interpretation. If I know my body, I'm like, this baby's here. I need you to move me. And they don't believe you. And something happens to my child, which is literally what has happened in all my pregnancies. Then There is more that needs to be done because it's life and death. When I talk about, it just reminds me when I talk about diversity and inclusion, People don't understand the passion that I have. Mm-hmm. It is life and death. Like the maternal health is showing you it is life and death. If I'm bringing up my children and we're bringing them up in this world, we've got to remember that ultimately my daughters, my sons as well, they may get in a situation whereby the decision is going to be a life and death situation. Children that look like them, your children, Lee, it is not that I'm just passionate about diversity and we want the system to change. It can be a life and death situation. My, something could happen. You, Someone could look at my, me or my child and say, I want to deal with it. It's not because you're not racist. It's because you don't want to run the books. You don't want to be seen to make the wrong decision. And because you don't want to see, be seen to make the wrong decision, you make the wrong decision. I'll just quickly have my lunch break now so I don't take that person on in case something happens while they're on my book. And you take the wrong decision. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's, the truth yeah. is, it's all that additional trauma. It's all, trauma, it is. All that additional trauma on top of the transgenerational trauma that the people who preceded us have gone through. And that comes through to us. It goes through to our children. We're facing those traumatic aspects every day. You know what they say to trust the medical system. But the reason why there's distrust in the medical system is because they don't trust us. And it's it's such a difficult thing because, you know, historically there's been issues. The very institutions that are supposed to protect us are quite often the ones that traumatise and damage us. And it's so difficult to explain that to people who don't really see it or have an appreciation for it but the truth is this this work it changes lives it it changes opportunities it reduces trauma it makes people able to live without this burden of weight and yet still 
we exist and we do this work being paper cut every minute of every day. And it's it's just people don't always see it. People don't see that weight that we carry. And at some point, it's actually nice for someone to just take one of those blocks off your shoulders and say, you know what? We'll smash that together. We'll we'll take a little bit of weight off. No, thank you so much. You've literally, there's so many triggers there. But what you're doing is making change and you are growing as a, you're evolving as yourself as you learn more to, to, to help more. And you're teaching and you're training and you're making an impact, Lee. And everything you're doing is to is going to have not just a trickle of change, it's going to have a waves of change. So I'm really grateful that you've been able to just come on and just talk about these subjects, real deep subjects. And we need more of it. There may be a part two with Lee, to be honest, because I, I have got so much bubbling in on me right now. Uh, but what I want you to do is I want, Lee is fantastic at continuing the conversation, particularly my favorite platform, LinkedIn. He continues the conversation a lot on the LinkedIn platform. So Lee, where I know we've just said LinkedIn, Lee Chambers, very easy to find. We'll put the links below. Where else can we find you? What is the best way if we want to know more about you and your services? Yeah, the best place, Sam, is to go to leechambers.org. And that kind of lists out the things that I offer, gives a bit more context around the stuff that we do. But like Sam says, I'm constantly challenging that narrative on LinkedIn, constantly pushing back to try and make privileged spaces more accessible and challenging whole industries to consider the practice that they carry out. But ultimately, you know, even within the allyship space, Sam, allyship can be sometimes very one dimensional. We've got to look at, got to open up those intersectional conversations. That's the thing I'm most passionate about because lots of people don't want to go there because it seems scary and I'm having to think about too many different aspects of the prism. If we think about things in such a flat way, we're going to get flat outcomes and flat outcomes aren't helping no one. So let's continue to build that three dimensions in the work that we do. And yeah, let's continue to make that change. I just want to say a massive thank you as the second male and ally to come onto the platform. As always, you're shaking up, you, you are shaking up things. You have come to disrupt and I love the conversation. I'm actually feeling a bit like relaxed now, but I definitely think there has to be a part two with Lee. So watch out, watch this space, go and click on the links that I'm going to post below, which is all the ways to follow Lee. Definitely get on LinkedIn and wherever else he's showing up. You're also an, a constant speaker on various different places, you know, and just keep watching out because this individual, I know you're going to continue to hear his voice, see his face because he's shaking things up. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for just being here and showing up. No, thank you, Sam.